Arab American Cafe podcast aims to surface a unique perspective. The Arab American perspective. Perspective that should be heard. And it is worth learning about. Join Muhannad and Hassan at this cafe, talking about stuff, debating, and discussing relevant issues while sipping coffee. Today at the cafe, we talk to Dr. Christine Ajrouche. She's director of the Michigan Center for Contextual Factors in Alzheimer's Disease. She's also the adjunct research professor for Life Course Development Program at the Institute for Social Research at the University of Michigan. We discuss aging in Arab Americans, old age as it applies to us, and some of the cultural challenges and the strength of what it means when we talk about the elderly. Let's listen. As far as old age, it really is a connotation that a person, in my mind, uh, applies to himself or herself. But oftentimes, and, and, and sometimes this is something that bothers me, I go to the store and people are calling me Ammo. And I'm thinking, Ammo, that means I'm old. That's what it means. Or sometimes they call me Hajj, and I don't understand why they do that, maybe out of respect or something. But that classifies me in the older people group. So uh, old age is, in my mind, as a doctor, is a chronological thing. It's a number, and I'm not at that number yet, except that uh, I get called Ammo, Uh, I get called Hajj and all that stuff by people who are much bigger and stronger and taller than me. See, I told you, I told you, Hassan, you either shave your head or dye your hair. That's that's going to contribute to you looking younger. But uh, I always said age is something in your heart. It's uh, if you're young at heart, then then you are still young. But joking aside, we know that um, with the advancement in science and medical care and all that, we are seeing a trend towards moving towards an aging population. People are living longer. Although the U.S. is compared to other uh, uh, industrial countries, we are uh, lower than, than our European counterparts. But again, I think the, the average life expectancy is close to 78 and a half years. And, uh, and, and that has come, if, if we look at the 50s and 60s, then we, we have came a long way. But I'm not sure, Christine, maybe you, you can uh, shed a light into that. Is this the same for Arab Americans as we move and adapt and uh, accommodate to life in the U.S.? Are we also seeing trends of uh, longer longevity and older population compared to what we have seen in the Arab world? Um, I would say absolutely. Arab Americans are living longer, and that's one of the, I think, exciting things about uh, human development. I mean, we have been able to extend uh, the lifespan in very significant ways, and it's very exciting because it means that we can um, have more time to spend with our families. We are now more than ever before able to see uh, grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Um, but Arab Americans, um, for the most part, although they're very similar to, to the statistics that we see in the U.S., they also tend to be, on average, a little bit younger, but that's primarily because we have such a large number of uh, immigrants coming into the U.S. from Arabic-speaking countries. So that tends to make the population a bit younger, even though we are living longer for those of us who are older. There is also diversity in aging, I believe, in the Arab-American community, meaning uh, you've got uh, Uh, you know, people who they, who come in old here and they are already uh, at a certain age where they're not be able to 
where they're not normally able to participate meaningfully, productively in the society. And there are those people who grow older here as well. And that probably also, you know, causes the identification or the definition of older Arab American uh, to be different. Uh, I don't know if you know what I'm trying to say here. I, I, you know, that's so interesting, Hassan, because I oftentimes will come across U.S.-born Arab Americans who like to distinguish themselves from immigrants in terms of being old. They they oftentimes will say, you know, immigrants, they, they, they like to act like they're old and they don't, they don't want to do anything. They don't want to be active. And they're so different from us who were born in the U.S. So there's definitely a different perspective, I think, about what it means to grow older and, and what that role entails. What are the expectations? Um, and so for those immigrants who come here at an older age, it's oftentimes for family reunification. They, they want to be here because their children are here. And that does create a lot of challenges. Um, But Arab American aging is also uh, uh, marked by a difference in terms of socioeconomic resources. And I think that's really important to recognize because oftentimes um, Arab Americans are are put up there as being very successful. You know, and if you look at the census data, they oftentimes have more education um, and higher average incomes than the average American. But what's oftentimes is, is ignored is they're also more likely to have less education and to have less economic resources. So the Arab American community is sort of bifurcated. We have a, a large group who are doing really well, but also a large group who aren't doing as well. So this this certainly uh, is, is a very good point because we know when we talk about the social determinants of health and we talk about like the differences in, in uh, life expectancy between two zip codes that might be like several miles apart. So what you're saying, this also applies to us as Arab Americans. And usually it takes probably a little bit of into assimilating and a generation to start catching up with that. Do you see a role for cultural assimilating or acculturation or the challenges from traditional expectations and how the U.S. life demand would add to this? Uh, definitely. You know, I think um, traditional expectations are often, um, uh, what often comes with traditional expectations is the idea that, you know, social connections and seeing um, not just your family members, but even your friends within the community is of prime importance. There's a lot of effort traditionally to spend a lot of time with other people. And I think in, in countries of origin, what oftentimes happen is that what oftentimes happens is that work is something you do, but it's not your whole life. I mean, the social aspect of living is so much more, um, so much more free, free-forming and natural. You don't have to structure your time in order to have a social um, moment with your family or with your friends. Whereas in the U.S., you know, we are very focused on our work life. The the work oftentimes is the primary activity that we engage in, and then we have to fit in around our work schedules, our social life, which includes, you know, seeing our parents or, um, you know, getting together with friends and the whole demands of the way in which life is organized in the United States, I think creates a lot of challenges for Arab Americans as we worry about our parents and our elders and how we're going to care for them. So it seems like there are challenges, but I'm sure there are also some cultural strength. Uh, Culture provides both. Uh, So being at work, engaged with uh, the demands of daily life uh, makes it difficult to be around 
not only your parents but also your family your kids your your friends and i for one i feel guilty when i'm unable to go visit with my mom or you know see her as often as i have to i want to she wants me to that so that's a challenge that's just one of them but the the, the strength and i'd like to hear about that from you there are definitely strengths aren't they i hope so there, I, I think actually Arab Americans have a lot of strengths. Um, and I think one of the main strengths I'd like to highlight is the ways in which our socialization um, occurs from the time that we're born uh, throughout our life course. And generally, you know, from the time that we're born, uh, children are, of, are oftentimes called by um, their the name that we would refer to their mother and father. So a little child would refer to their mother or father as mama or baba. And what happens in the Arabic culture is that we tend to also refer to our child by the same name that they're calling us. And what that does is it creates a kind of connection where the child grows up seeing themselves as really being intricately tied to their parents. I mean, there are other phrases in Arabic too, for example, ayuni or ruhi, and these are saying my eyes, my soul, you're letting that child know that they are part of you. And that feeling of connectedness is such a strong resource, not just for the child, but for the parents as they grow older. So in the Arab American community, we're oftentimes, um, you know, you mentioned Hassan feeling guilty. And I think that guilt in large part comes from that strong connection we grow up with to be uh, with our parents. And so I think that serves as a resource because what it does is it allows us to think about finding ways where we can be there for our parents, even though we have the challenges and the demands of the life uh, that we face in the United States. That's a very good point, Christine. I, I teach a class on Arab American help, and, and what is fascinating when I usually talk about the family unit in the Arab world and how we transfer or transfer this family unit to our life here and usually it lasts for a at least a generation and then that family unit starts to disintegrate and and we start resembling what a western family unit is and this is so traumatic to the the hierarchy of of that unit they especially the first um, immigrants and and how they feel that they are losing grip on on that unit but but it's also a protective uh, factor against isolation. We, especially now in, in COVID-19 uh, era, we are seeing the transmission in certain communities because of the intergenerational or the cross-generational connection, where you have a household where still the grandfather or grandmother are with the parents, with the grandchildren, still living as one unit, and that interaction is certainly happening. Which brings us to the idea of us as Arab Americans, where that family unit is so sacred and so strong, the, the concept of not caring for our parents, no matter where they are, or not parent, not caring for our elderly, is a is an alien concept. There is no uh, idea for someone to say, "My parents are old. I'm going to put them in a nursing home." That is considered ayeb. It's a shame. What would people talk about us? There's also those that are torn between them being here and their parents overseas and how do they uh, uh, maintain that that connection and how do they care for those and and i think these are all challenges that i'm sure you see on a daily basis when you interact with the community uh absolutely and, and you know 
Mohanad, I, I love that you talked about the, the shame that's associated with um, institutional uh, placement or with even seeking help outside of the home. I really think we need to change that narrative. And, and the reason why I say that is because we need to think about the fact that when we access help outside of the home or we access institutional support, that is us taking care of our parents because we can't do um, what was done maybe 50 years ago, not, not because we don't want to, but things are, demographics are changing. People didn't live as long as they do today. With, with longer life come much more health challenges, much more longer periods of dependency. And for a child to be able to take care of their parent 24 seven, um, it's, it's oftentimes unreasonable um, and can lead to bad outcomes. And when I say bad outcomes, I mean the stress and the demands of being able to do everything in terms of care can oftentimes lead to, um, well, I mean, abuse is, is a strong word, but people don't even realize they're doing it. They may lose patience with their parents or they may not be able to um, carry them when they need to go to the bathroom and then they'll get hurt. And it's not because they're not trying, they're trying their best. But what we need to do is think about changing the narrative and use our cultural strengths of, of, of that care we have for our parents so that we can be innovative and think about how are we going to care for our parents now that times have changed and resources have changed. You know, when I look around, I see, uh, you know, when I'm talking about the parents and their their children uh, living here in the United States, I see three different uh, variations to the theme, to, so to speak. You've got uh, the parents overseas and the children here in the United States feeling guilty and disconnected because they're not able to be involved in their parents' care. And basically it becomes their annual pilgrimage once or twice a day. Uh, twice a year to go and visit and then come back guiltier when they return here. You've got the second variation to the theme is when the parents are here in the United States, but you as a working adult, you're overwhelmed with your work and you're also overwhelmed with your feeling of uh, you know guilt because you're not as available or sometimes you're financially overwhelmed so so this is going back to what you mentioned seeking out resources the third variation to this theme is when your parents come to join you they're already elderly they barely speak english they feel isolated the first thing they want to do is go back home because this is not good this is not what they're used to they cannot drive they cannot communicate or if they remain here and and we see a lot of this they remain here physically but otherwise they're not here they're basically on their facebook on their whatsapp they're watching arabic tv uh, satellite channels they they get the u.s news from al jazeera and from whatever arabic tv station they watch so so these are the three variations that i could think of and in all these three situations the outcome is not really as favorable as you'd want it to be not necessarily we're not really necessarily winning here in any of those situations so the question is uh, how do you approach this? And in, in, in my mind, there must be some kind of uh, more academic way to approach this, more scientifically proven. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking with a, with a doctor's hat right now. I, I cannot get rid of that. Yeah. Well, I, I think um, one of the best ways to approach this is to, um, and this is, I think, a difficult thing to do in our culture, is to talk with our uh, parents about what kinds of expectations do they have?
have and how do they see themselves um, how do they see themselves being best taken care of um, and and what are what are the obstacles to that and then think about uh, potential paths over those obstacles I mean we can we can definitely create um, activities uh, for example promoting intergenerational activities our our elders have so much in terms of life experience and insights about how the world works that if we can create ways for them to interact on a much more regular basis with our children or our grand or their grandchildren i think what we can do is uh, create opportunities for them to feel engaged to feel like they're part of this society for those who have who have moved here for example you know we could come up with activities where um the uh our parents who moved here from the old country um We'll teach our kids Arabic. Oftentimes we want our kids to know the language um, of our uh, homeland and it's very hard to do in the United States. And so why not take advantage of um, having them teach the kids Arabic or maybe teach them um, ways of doing things that were done uh, in the old country. For example, cooking Arabic foods. Um, those are skills that we're gonna lose as Mohanad said, as the generations uh, carry on. And so if we can take advantage of what older adults bring to us, think of them as a resource themselves, not just what resources can we have to take care of them, but um, engage them and and recognize the value that they bring to our lives. I think that can go a long way. You know, that's a great idea, Christine. Uh, two, two examples I'm, I'm going to share with you guys. Um, one, when uh, I was in Jordan at one point, and uh, there was uh, a progressive group that decided they wanted to do the concept of an adult daycare. So we, we have that, we have these here in the U.S. where you're working and you have someone, your, your parent, that you need someone to look uh, after them. So you put them somewhere kind of like a, a daycare and then you pick them up at the end of the day. So they established one in Amman in Jordan and um, nobody was ever willing to go there because it was first called an adult daycare. They changed the name into cafe. They called it Maqar Wad. And people were in line waiting to drop those elderly, which exactly the same concept. They would sit there, read the newspaper, play chess, play back, whatever it is. So, so that is one way of, of how revered the elderly are in our culture. Now that we are dealing with COVID and, and what we're doing in public health, we we have embarked on a huge media campaign for specifically the Arab American community that has Teta as grandmother as the central figure. So I'm sure you've seen some billboard that says, Teta said, wear your mask, or Teta said, you keep me safe by maintaining social distancing. And this is how much it's embedded in our head of, of how respectful we should be for, for our elders. You know, Christine wrote the paper on the adult uh, daycare right for arab american that's right that's right and what we did was we talked to older adults i mean and, and that was why i was saying it's so important just to talk to our elders to see what works for them what do they want to see happen and um you know i think there's a lot of ways forward mohanad you you referred to language the way in which these things are referred to that's crucial um because we want to make it something that people feel like is respecting them and is part of who they are not not like we're homogenizing them as just these old people we're going to put 
put into a daycare. Um, so I think that's critical. Uh, the language that we use and just getting older adults as part of the planning process, get them involved, engage them so that we can plan based on what their preferences are. The idea is to engage the family and uh and that's doable, probably more so in the Arab-American community than in other communities. Maybe similarly, you'd find a role for the family in the Latino community, maybe also in the Chinese-American community. But how about building institutions? I mean, we know in California, for instance, the Armenian-American community, even here in Michigan, uh, the Persian-American community, again, in California and in, in other states, uh, have built institutions whereby older uh, community members can be cared for. Uh, the Jewish community is very good at doing something like that as well. Uh, we haven't really gone in that direction, or at least uh, probably very small baby steps in that direction. Isn't that so? Yeah, that that is the case, and it's um, something that we really need to focus some attention on. I, I think one of the reasons why we lag behind other groups is we're a relatively more recent immigrant. I mean, it's true, Arab Americans have been coming to this country since the early 1900s. But you have to recognize that there was a 40-year period where that immigration stopped. So a whole generation sort of assimilated. And then in 1965, when they opened the borders again, and we started getting a lot more immigrants from the Arab uh, world, um, we're, we're relatively recent in the larger scheme of things. So I think what we need to do is um, really start talking about the issue publicly. And that's why I'm so happy and so delighted you guys wanted to make this a podcast topic, because I think we need to start to have the conversations and ha help people to feel more comfortable with the idea of veering away from our traditional approach, which is basically just to rely on the family. And, and you have to understand that's a remnant of the old country. You know, most of us come from countries where there's very weak welfare states. The family is the only security that anyone can count on. And so family is what you count on to take care of you as you get older. Well, now that people are living longer and there are more challenges that come with living longer, although there are also more benefits, but more challenges, we need to start taking that reality and using it as a way to build um, institutions that can help us and institutions that uh, attend to our cultural preferences. I think that's really important. Christine, every time, I'm sure each one of us, when we go and seek medical care, we're given a lot of forms of which one specifically is a concept that I don't see in our old countries. And certainly it's something that Arab Americans don't understand, which is the advanced directive. And and it, it is very important maybe at, at any age, I believe, but even when, when with the older population, planning for the end of life, planning for uh, hospice, planning for all this, and emotionally, we're not prepared for that as, as Arabs. And certainly, uh, culturally, we don't have anything that resembles that. And the minute you, you are presented with that paper as if you are committing to abandoning someone at some point, or as if you are, as if it's your will, you know, when someone tells you I'm writing your will and say, oh, la samahallah, why are you thinking this and all of that? How, how do we change that and, and get people to understand why it is very important? You know, I, th that, that is such a, um, 
important question, Mohanad. And I, I do want to say that I think this is a challenge that we find in general, not just with Arab Americans. I think there's an added layer of resistance in the Arab American case because of the um, traditional expectations that, you know, par- uh, older adults just think, you know, their, their kids will take care of it and they can just rely on their kids. They'll know what to do if something happens to them. And that puts a lot of pressure on adult children because, um, you know, we, we need to know really what our prefer- what the preferences are from our older adults. I, I think one way that we can work towards this is, again, we need to find ways to talk about it whenever we can. Um, I, I think healthcare professionals in particular, you know, oftentimes our um, elders, list, uh, doctors are very well-respected authority figures. I think if we can get physicians to start talking to their patients about it as a normal thing, that's something they should think about, and and open up the conversation for any kinds of questions. I think that would really help because, you know, if one of your family members comes and tells you that you're right, they're going to think, well, why, why are you saying that? What do you think is going to happen to me? I don't want to talk about that now. But getting somebody outside of the family and particularly a respected individual, um, I, I think you, we can go a long way in terms of starting to change the mindset on this very important uh, decision that needs to be made. A lot of it probably has to do with uh, religious and cultural taboos uh, or or norms, if you will. Many, many would feel that uh, whatever comes from God is fine, so why bother? Uh, Many feel that um, we don't plan things, we just wing it, you know, we we do whatever works. And then a lot of times uh, things are left to the very last minute. And that's a cultural thing. I mean, I'm not just saying Arab uh, have this problem. Many other cultures don't necessarily engage in long-term planning. And I remember when I first joined my job, this was, you know, years ago, right? And I was just a young guy and they told me, how about your 401k? I said, what is a 401k? They said, you know, uh, that's when you save money for retirement. And I'm thinking, I just joined the job. You want me to start saving? I want to spend money. I want to save money. So you don't grow up learning how to plan. And that's that's an issue here. We have, I mean, I did have that. Pro- I still have that problem, actually. Yeah. I, and again, I think that goes back to, uh, you know, the fact that our traditionally we come from uh, countries where, you know, planning ahead and, and, you know, the structures in place to encourage you to plan ahead really aren't in place. So being exposed to that here, um, you know, oftentimes is foreign and it doesn't seem it's not comfortable because it's not something that we're it's not a way that we're used to thinking. Um, but if we, you know, the more we're exposed to it and the more that we are um able to hear conversation about it. And again, especially from uh, people who are well-respected and have authority in our society, I think the more likely we are to be able to start to see a shift in terms of how people think about it. That's very true. This is very uh, informative and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it myself. Uh, It's an eye-opener and um, let's hope that um, be able to see clearly into the future because many of those things that uh, surround us are, are, are something are issues that we can deal with in a very smart and effective way absolutely words of wisdom from a uh, very wise uh, Ammo. <laughs> thank you <Rosette laughs> for sharing this with us thank All right. So this was the conversation overheard at the cafe. Please share it and subscribe to the podcast and email us your ideas and thoughts to podcasts at arabamericancafe.com 
or join the conversation on Twitter at AA Cafe Podcasts. Thank you.